Ah, yes. Another year has gone by. Another football season is in the rearview mirror, and that means that the biggest sporting event in North America is upon us once again, as Super Bowl 58 is coming up on Sunday, February 11th, and you are listening to the official Gribble Nation Roadcast preview show for the big game. And tonight, we're going to be discussing this game with my team of mystery guests. Uh, There will be three of them that will be joining me. And we'll discuss the cities of San Francisco and Kansas City. And we'll also have another mystery guest on to discuss the X's and O's of the game and break it down on a more football-oriented level. Super Bowl 58, as I said, will be coming up on February 11th. It will feature the NFC champion San Francisco 49ers and the AFC champion Kansas City Chiefs. The Chiefs, of course, are entering this game as the defending Super Bowl champions. They won Super Bowl 57 a year ago against the Philadelphia Eagles. They will be going for their third Super Bowl victory in the last five seasons. The Chiefs will also be attempting to be the first team to repeat as Super Bowl winners. Uh, The last team to do that, of course, being the New England Patriots nearly 20 years ago. Uh, The Chiefs had a chance to repeat as champions, but lost Super Bowl 55 uh, to Tampa. And so now this is the second time in the last few years that the Chiefs enter a Super Bowl as the defending Super Bowl champions. So it will be interesting to see how this plays out. Of course, this game is going to end up being a rematch of the Chiefs' first Super Bowl win of the Patrick Mahomes era when they beat these same 49ers in that game. This year's version of the Super Bowl will be played in Las Vegas at Allegiant Stadium. It's the first Super Bowl to be played in Las Vegas and the first to be held in the state of Nevada in general. And the game will be on TV on CBS, so we will have to endure three-plus hours of commentary from Tony Romo. Aren't we lucky? So we've got a lot to get to, and after this first voice break upcoming, we will be introduced to mystery guest number one, and we will discuss... Kansas City Metro and that side of things, the roads of the area, landmarks, other happenings, and we get it all underway right after this on the Super Bowl 58 preview show. Thank you all very much for listening, and we'll catch you on the other side. Let's go to Tyler in Hamburg. Tyler, you're on the postgame show and uh, overtime show. Welcome. Hey. Hey, what's going on, Nate? Um, uh, I just want to, uh, uh, I don't know. Fourth, fourth straight year I've called on the on this show after after a loss. Uh, I just want to say uh, congratulations to you, Nate. Uh, another great year. Fucking, I, I sorry. All right, welcome back, everybody. It's time for our in-depth look at the Kansas City side of things. And with that, I will bring in mystery guest number one. And I will bring him into the fold by basically saying this. Uh, Well, young man, here we are yet again, another Super Bowl. And once again, we get to talk about, I guess, the one of what's becoming one of the most talked about metro areas on the podcast because we have to talk about them every year and that is kansas city yep it reminds me of a song by uh, the band the new basement tapes called kansas city and they're singing one of the you know lines from the song is i'm going back to kansas city 
you know, like over and over again. Like that's the main chorus of the song. So that this reminds me of that song. Uh yeah. I mean, it's. By the way, if you if you don't recognize that voice, uh, we're talking with uh, the great and powerful Doug. Uh, how are you, young man? I'm doing well, thank you. Yeah. So. Um... Kansas City, I, I think, I know that we've done this before, but I think it would be good for us to give a brief overview of the freeway system before we dive into other topics. Um, Kansas City is where a few different mainline interstates converge. You have 70 running from east to west. You have 35 coming from the southwest and departing to the northeast. Uh, the southern terminus of I-29 is in Kansas City, as is the northern terminus of I-49. Uh, on the auxiliary interstate front, of course, you have the 435 loop, which encircles the city. It is the second longest interstate highway beltway in America. It's only about a mile shy of the number one spot, which is 275 around Cincinnati. Um right. You also and have, that'll take that'll take you to Arrowhead Stadium more or less. Yeah, so like Arrowhead is right where the Eastern four thirty five seventy junction is more or less. Um, so you have that, and then of course you have six thirty five on the Kansas side. You have four seventy, which is more like the southeastern fringes of the metro out by Lee's Summit. And then, of course, you have the downtown loop, or what is sometimes known as the alphabet loop, which is parts of 670, and then there's I-35 and I-70, and I-29 comes into the northeast corner of it, and it's this giant mess of, of freeways where all of these suffixes use letters, and I think only the letters I, O, and Z are not used. Um, and of course it's known as the alphabet loop because you have 23 different exits in the circle here that encircles downtown there. So that is the brief overview of the metro area. And of course on the Kansas side, um, I should also mention that the Kansas Turnpike has its eastern terminus in the western Kansas City, Kansas suburbs. Um, and that's kind of it for... The overview, wouldn't you say? Uh, yeah, it's a pretty uh, basic overview, of course. Yeah, we've went a little bit more in-depth on this. Uh, another thing that I would say is uh, not just the interstates, but you also have uh, US-71, which goes from um, you know, basically you know, north-south, but obviously one of the big parts is north from you know, 435 and 49 and 470 into downtown. Um, and then also you have, you know, 291, which is a, you know, continuation of, um, you know, I-40, uh, sorry, I-470 north of, uh, yeah, north, north of I-70 going towards Independence, which is a place where many roads began. <laughs> That's what they say, right? Um, yes. That's the site of the Harry Truman Presidential Library and Museum. And I've been there. Yeah, I, you know, I've been in Kansas City a few times now, and I just have not gotten yeah. out there yet. Um, well, they uh, kept it true to how it, like how the house was when uh, Bess Truman, who was you know uh, Harry uh, S. Truman's wife and first lady, how how it was when you know she had uh, died. You know, they were 
not wealthy by any means. They lived in fairly comfortably, but you know, they um, it wasn't anything elaborate. It's just a you know, it's a normal, essentially a normal house in town. Uh, but you know, right around there, that's you know where the Oregon Trail and you know the uh, California Trail and I think the Santa Fe Trail all started there. The uh, Mormon Trail you know, obviously picked up a little bit further north uh, near Omaha. Uh, but, you know, that's, you know, a lot of westward expansion started right in the Kansas City area. Yeah, it's it's funny how St. Louis and Kansas City kind of call themselves the gateway to the west. Right. And they are right to a point, both of them are. You know, Kansas City, of course, being a major stockyard uh, hub and, of course, a big railroad hub. And then you also have St. Louis, of course, you know, the end of the original American territory there on the Mississippi river. And then everything West of that was the new country. Um, so yeah, they both like to fight over that claim of being gateway to the West. Um, I want to mention real quick, um, the national world war one museum in Memorial is located in Kansas city. Um, and that's a place that I really recommend if you want to check out a chapter of American history that doesn't get talked about a lot, which is our involvement in the Great War, 1917 and 18. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of really powerful stuff in that museum. Um, the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum is in town as well. Um, so you have a and lot the, of entertainment-based yep. stuff in the area if you're into history. And the Money Museum, which is a museum about, well, money. <laughs> Hey, you know, I, I like me some money. That's all right yes. with me. Um, I, I want to touch on some current events that are going on in the area. Um, since we last spoke about the city, um, you have infrastructure improvements that are going on, as well as some proposed projects that are going to be really big uh, uh, headline projects in the years ahead. The one that is most prominent and is in progress right now is the replacement of the Buck O'Neill Bridge, which is US 169 uh, across the Missouri River between the Wheeler Downtown Airport and the northwest corner of the Downtown Loop. That project began in 2021. Um, they actually, the, this past week, in fact, there was a major milestone on that project reached where traffic is now crossing on the new bridge. Um, yes, they have now permanently shut down the old bridge to all traffic as part of this new phase of the project that they're entering. So they got that milestone reached last week and they are on track to complete the project at the end of 2024. Yes. And if you go to uh, their web, uh, Missouri uh, DOT, they have a good website that actually mentions the milestones where, you know, basically the traffic shift Basically, uh, they shift the northbound traffic to from the existing bridge to the new bridge. It was last week, as you had mentioned, uh, because that'll help um, the crews begin work on demolishing the, the old bridge and to finish work on the second river bridge structure. That's right, yeah. So because of the tight space constraints there right across from the airport, they have to do demo of the old bridge so that they can finish the tie-in. Um, basically on both ends of the bridge, actually. But, yeah, the, the right. airport side is more urgent at this point. Um, so that's what's going on there. Um, there has been talk over the last few years, and I've been kind of paying attention to it in and out, but it seems to be finally gathering momentum. 
the downtown loop was obviously this big deal that solidified the automobile as the dominant mode of traffic in in kansas city and ever since they built this ring of freeways and ramps around town there's been questions about you know how to beautify the downtown area while incorporating this freeway system into it there has been talk over the years about eliminating parts of the downtown loop specifically the northern leg of it um that seems to have died down considerably in recent years but now the hot topic is building caps over parts of the downtown loop uh to create new green space which i think is a really interesting idea um where you're most likely to see this anytime soon is along the south loop which is i-670 between the convention center and the uh i-70 us 71 junction at the southeast corner of the loop that seems to be where there's momentum right now for that but there there is the possibility that if this project is successful that we'll see caps on other parts of the downtown loop which i think again would be a really interesting addition right and that's something where i i'm in favor of more so than tearing down a uh a freeway because you know you get to keep your you know your redundancy and your highway capacity plus it also you know does connect the community you know gives more green space and what have you especially since you know the um the down the downtown loop uh basically the north part of the loop really you know divides downtown from uh the river um and the other thing the south loop for 670 uh, that part i believe is more of a depressed freeway for a big part part of it so it is you know ease they can eat more easily cap that section of uh the uh, of the highway of the loop uh, to do that. So I think that's, if they're able to do that, I think that's the way to go. Yeah, a lot of it is below grade. I think that the reason why they were hell-bent on thinking about removing the northern arc is because of, that's the section that has the lowest amount of traffic by, you know, daily average volume counts and whatnot. But the thing that is really nice about KC in general is, as you touched on before, the amount of freeway redundancy um in the in the metro as a whole like you have you know an alternate route that's a freeway that's not too far away in most locations it's not like we're in san francisco where which we'll talk about later on in the program where there's basically like two highways and that's basically it and then you got the bridges but there's no real freeway access to most parts of the san francisco peninsula but here in kc um you do have quite a lot of redundancy and that's why you're able to do full shutdowns of 169 you know in downtown for this buck o'neill project because you have other options that are right nearby and so it makes from a construction standpoint it makes these projects so much easier when you can just do full shutdowns rather than staging out the work and having it take eight or nine years to build a project that would take in this case take three right which of course, you know, might lead us towards one of the next things that you know we were uh, talking about was the Kansas City Royals are looking at building a ballpark in downtown Kansas City. I think near the uh, Power and Light District. Um, I came across an article today, actually, uh, while I was uh, getting uh, ready to, um, you know, basically talk about you know basically Kansas City, and. Um, 
Kansas City Royals owner, this was from the Kansas City Star, basically says the decision on stadium location coming soon, and uh, they are considering a stadium with the general location of the uh, former Kansas City Star Press Pavilion on McGee Street, which is actually near the downtown South Loop over pretty much across from the T-Mobile Center. Yeah, there's there's plenty of space to build a ballpark there, like out by like the eastern end of downtown there. Um, so that's that seems to be where the momentum is at this point to put something like that. Um, yeah, that would be a pretty big project. And, of course, the Royals are looking to develop the land around the ballpark whenever that gets built. So this is kind of the trend that we're seeing in sports where teams want to not only build their stadium, they want to own their stadium, and they also want to become the landlord for the, the buildings around it. So it's, it's, uh, yeah. it's kind of like a giant money grab, in effect. Um, we're seeing this with... Uh, we saw this with the Braves in Atlanta. They did something very similar. Um, the New York Islanders. The Islanders, yeah. Because yeah, they're going to be developing that uh, part of Belmont Park south of Hempstead Turnpike to be a uh, luxury, luxury retail village, uh, which is one of the owners of the Islanders, um, Scott Malkin. He does... Um, he owns a company that does uh, that operates uh, luxury retail villages over in Europe, in China. Yeah. So you'll see something like that, or like in Kansas City, they might not go that route, but you know, basically a nice ballpark village. I think St. Louis has one too. So. Yeah, I think I think that's right. Yeah, because I, I when I went to a game in St. Louis a few years ago, they were building a lot of stuff around the ballpark, and I didn't really know what it was. But I, I think I think you're right about that. Um, but yeah, so Kansas City is very interesting in itself, but I want to devote a few minutes to a couple of places outside the metro that are not too far away. They're, they're like within an hour of the metro that I think are worth your time um, if you have the the chance to take a detour and see something a little bit different. And the city that I want to start by profiling is St. Joseph, Missouri, which is... Just a short drive, really, up I-29. It's along the Missouri River there. Um, St. Joe is one of those really interesting cities that seems to be just, like, frozen in another time altogether. Um, it's got it's about the same size population-wise as Wilmington, Delaware. Doug, you're very familiar with Binghamton, New York. Um, yes. And my dad is from there, so I know that city very well. This... St. Joe reminds me a lot of Binghamton. Um, Except they also have the Pony Express. Well, they St. <laughs> Joe does not have, like, speedies, but they do have the Pony Express Museum. Um, and the Jesse James home is in St. Joseph. Um, it was the east end of the Pony Express that went westward from the Missouri River. Um, the, one of the biggest industries in St. Joe was the livestock industry. Um, their livestock exchange, uh, was one of the largest in the United States, in fact, like 120 years ago or so. Um, so it, it's a city that had a lot of industry, like a hundred and something years ago, and it's largely gone now, but the architecture is from like the turn of the 20th century. And it, 
like when you drive through downtown St. Joe, it reminds me so much of like your typical like, like Great Lakes Rust Belt city. Like the 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 architecture is all the same, and you know it's it's a really it's a throwback to a period of time that you know we only read about in history books nowadays. Um, the other thing, if you like roads. Um, it's kind of a weird place for there to be a double-deck freeway. You wouldn't guess that St. Joe would be where you would find one of these, but sure enough, um, the I-229 freeway, which was built largely in the late 1970s and was fully completed in, by 1986, it has a double-deck freeway section along the Missouri Riverfront across from downtown St. Joe. Um, what's interesting about this freeway is that it was planned... It was not part of the original freeway plan of the area. Um, city officials in St. Joe realized that their population base and their commercial base was leaving the city, and so they wanted to build a highway to like serve downtown. But in fact, it actually had the opposite effect. It gave people an excuse to leave the city instead, so it actually mm. only made the problem worse. Um, as it stands, the 229 freeway is the, only, is the lowest volume freeway in the state of Missouri that's on the interstate system. And I think it's by a wide margin. Um, so Missouri officials are actually talking about demolishing the freeway sometime in the next 10 years. So if you like double-deck freeways and all that, uh, this is an area of the country for you to check out, at least while this one is still with us. And then uh, the other uh, city that you know we were uh, wanted to highlight is over in Kansas. If you take the uh, Kansas Turnpike west from Kansas City, you'll um, you know hit the uh, state capital of um, Kansas, which is Topeka. Uh, Topeka is actually um, a very interesting city historically. Uh, it is actually uh, the name Topeka comes from a Kansas Osage word that means place where we dig potatoes or a good place to dig potatoes um and uh basically they kind of chose that name because you know it sounded nice i guess and uh so um <laughs> uh what happened is that you know basically wagon trains you know they would uh come from independence missouri which we touched on earlier um you know they would go uh from topeka and then they would start you know working their way uh west um, and, you know, other things, too, you know, might uh, have heard of, you know, the Brown versus the Board of Education of Topeka, uh, which overturned Plessy versus Ferguson and declared racial desegregation in public schools to be unconstitutional. I think that was in 1954. That was the decision uh, made by the Supreme Court. Uh, from a roads uh, perspective, you have a few uh, interstates that go through Topeka. Um, you know, I four seventy is kind of like their, you know, the loop that goes, you know, basically bypasses the downtown. And that's part of it is the can part part of it's on the Kansas uh, Turnpike, the eastern part. The western part is you know, basically just kind of bypasses uh, downtown to the west. Uh, like the Kansas Turnpike that was opened during the 1950s, and then after the Kansas Turnpike um, was opened, um, then uh, construction began on the western portion of I-70, and 
that was essentially opened in 1960, on October 1st of 1960. That's the free uh, section of the uh, highway. And then you have I-70, which goes through uh, downtown uh, Topeka. And that is um, the one that goes through downtown. And, you know, basically that's a nice, uh, you know, urban, you know, freeway drive. Topeka is not a big city by any means. It's um, probably about, you know, it's... The uh, the metropolitan area is pretty small, probably you know, the size of like a Utica or something like that. Uh, but the uh, city's got about 125,000 people. Um, other highways you might encounter, you know, while you're in Topeka, uh, you know, you have the um, you know K4, which is a road that goes. It's basically it's a road that goes, you know, basically east west, you know through a large portion of uh, Kansas, you'll see that. Um, other things, you know, basically you have I-335, which is also part of that Kansas Turnpike, and that's really the section, you know, basically where I-470 leaves off. That's where I-335 uh, uh, comes in, and basically, you know, you can go southwest, um, you know, from there um, in Topeka. And then you have uh, your U.S. routes that go through U.S. 24, uh, U.S. 40, both of those which, you know, do go to Kansas City. And then you have uh, U.S. Uh, 75, which you know, basically goes north-south, and you can take that to Omaha or Tulsa or, you know, Dallas, Texas even, so... Um, you know, lots of places to check out. Um, other things, you know, with uh, Topeka, which um, um, basically a lot of um, people, uh, you know, may not be you know, aware of, um, is, you know, I've said it is a state capital, but they also uh, try to um, do a lot of things with fiber optics. You know, they uh, really are trying to bring... Um, the technology to Topeka, and they were joking that they would rename the uh, Topeka for a month back in 2010 as Google Kansas, the capital city of fiber optics. So, you know, they, they're trying to be technolo technologically forward as well. So, I want to circle back to one thing you mentioned. Um, do you know the story behind why 335 exists? Um, I know that they... Uh, needed you know, basically as part of the Kansas uh, Turnpike and they needed to you know connect to I-35 somehow. Yeah, so it it was like the section that's 335 was originally not part of the interstate system. Uh it was obviously part of the Kansas Turnpike when it was built, but there was no plan to include it in the interstate system originally. Um, in fact, the the reason why it became an interstate had to do with a change in 1987 to the national maximum speed limit law which back in those days it was 55 miles an hour you know everywhere the exception that was granted in the change in the law was that you could sign rural interstate highways to 65 miles an hour um, so the kansas turnpike was all on the interstate system except for this stretch between emporia and topeka so they said well for consistency's sake, let's just slap an interstate shield on it so that we can raise the speed limit. 
Right. So that's how 335 was born. And this is also, this is not the only case where an interstate exists because of the speed limit law. The, uh, the uh, what is it? The Western I-88 in Illinois. That was originally an Illinois state highway. I think it was and, Illinois uh, Highway 5 or something like that. I think that's right, yeah. And so they wanted it to be signed at 65 miles an hour, so they fast-tracked some laws or legislation through, and they were able to slap I-88 shields on it. Right. So <laughs> it's one of those weird, again, this is one of those weird exceptions to the rule with interstates. But, yeah, that's that's why I-335 exists at all, yeah. But yeah, no, Topeka is interesting too. You know, I I got to I got to spend some time there. I guess this past year, I was finishing up my national clinch of I seventy, and I ended up in Topeka for a little while. And the National Park Service maintains the Brown and, Brown and versus Board of Education historic site in town, and also the the state capitol grounds in Topeka are very pretty, very beautiful. Yes, I've had a chance to walk around there. Um, there's also an Evil Knievel Museum. I didn't know that. Is that right? I uh, apparently there is. Yes. Oh, all right. Well, next time, I guess. Yeah, but uh, I seventy you know, takes you, you know pretty close to the state capitol and the uh, Brown versus uh, Board of Education. Um, Basically, downtown, you know, is to the west of I-70 in that section, so. As we circle back to football here to wrap up this segment, um, you know, you and I and our mutual friend, Rob, who is a Pittsburgh fan, and our friend, Laura, MD Rhodes, who is a Baltimore fan, you know, we're all in sort of the same position here in that we're all, like fighting for second place in the AFC, it feels like. Yeah, At this point, yeah. So I know that, um, like, I'm a Bills fan, and, um, you know, basically can't, you know, Kansas City has been in the playoffs our, you know, our problem. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're really like the new Patriots. Right, like we, but... We, um, we watched the Patriots dominate for, what, was that 15 years or 20 years or whatever? And, right. Here we are again. It's it feels like we're we're watching the same thing unfold here, does it not? Right. Well, then again, you got to remember too. The reason why I'm a Bills fan is because they made those Super Bowls for four years straight. Yeah, there was a time when I mean, you remember it. I'm I'm too young to remember that, those days. But yeah, the Bills were that team. Yeah. So. Bills, and of course, you know, like there was always other teams you talk about, like you know, maybe maybe they'll make it, um, like the Broncos, you know, the Dolphins at that point. Um, but it is, um, you know, Kansas City, I would say, you know, they're like the Patriots, but I actually do have a lot more respect for, you know, these these uh, Chiefs than the Patriots. Actually, I discovered um, that the uh, Chiefs were actually named after a former mayor of Kansas, I think it was a former mayor of Kansas City, who was instrumental in bringing the team in from Dallas, Texas, and everyone called the mayor, his nickname was Chief. I didn't know that story. That's interesting. Yeah, I came across that article actually within the past week. I think his name was Ray Bartle or something like that was the name of the mayor. But his nickname was Chief, and so that's why... They ever called him Chief, and because uh, Lamar Hunt was, you know, basically, you know, very appreciative of the efforts to bring the, uh, basically, to bring the Chiefs in, because he couldn't make, you know, basically, they were 
could make money in Dallas. I think he really wanted to stay in Dallas, but um, they couldn't make money. And, you know, the Chiefs were like, you know, we want you. Um, like the uh, Lamar Hunt, he looked at other places like Atlanta, and I think there was another city he looked at, maybe New Orleans, and Kansas City stepped up like, we want, we want your team. Yeah, yeah, that's 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 an interesting part of their history. Yeah, because a lot of people don't realize that they began play in Dallas. They were the Dallas Texans for three years, I think. Yes. And the Dallas Cowboys were an expansion team in the NFL, like in nineteen sixty one. I think they began play, and all of a sudden, you know, Lamar Hunt was not going to compete with another league and another team. So that was the end of that for the Texans, anyway. Um, but yeah, so that's that's kind of their roots way back way back in the '60s. But in the present time, um, as you look at this game uh, between Kansas City and San Francisco, um, what do you see as central to this game? You know, how it how it will play out? Well, I think it's going to be a lot of um, a lot of game management. Um, I think you'll see. Um, I think you'll see um, the 49ers, you know, you know, starting behind. You know, basically, the Chiefs will probably take the lead early, and they'll probably make a good, uh, a good comeback. But I think they'll come short. Uh, I think they'll, you know, come up a little short. And I think that, you know, Kansas City will win by a touchdown. I don't know how – I don't know. I can't make a uh, prediction on what the um, – Final score might be maybe something like twenty four seventeen or something like that, and I uh, don't think you'll see a marriage proposal at the end of the game. You don't think so, huh? I think it'll be a little <laughs> bit more private. <laughs> you know, I, I I tend to agree with you, but you know what? If if the game goes a certain way and the individuals in question are who I think you're alluding to. And yes, uh, I am. Eh? And I think, and I think everyone who's listening would know, especially if you've been paying attention to, um, um, you know, the news and football over the past oh, five months or so. Yeah, well, that just adds a whole another layer to this thing, doesn't it? Yes. Like, that Super Bowls are big events anyway, but then when you add in celebrity romance into the mix, it just it's just it takes off. It it brings a whole another audience into the game that otherwise wouldn't care about it. Which I think the NFL has to be looking at that and is just they've got to be ecstatic about that. Right. So yeah, I'm sure that this Super Bowl is going to break all sorts of viewership records. I don't think there's any question about that. Um, and it should be, I hope it'll be an interesting game for the number of eyeballs who are going to be watching it. It should be a lot of fun, but you, all right, so I'm going to put you down here. You are on the Kansas city bandwagon here for this game. I might be rooting for the Niners, but I think that Kansas city will win. Yeah. Well, all right. All right. I'll, I'll put you down there. Genius. All right. Uh, well, Doug, thank you so much for hopping on. Uh, all right. Couldn't have done this look at Kansas City without you. And yep. um, I'm going to take a voice break here. And when we come back, uh, we'll come back with mystery guest number two. And we'll talk about San Francisco. And we'll do that right after this on the Super Bowl preview show. So stay tuned. The defense uh, decimated. Uh, and, and it's hard to 
it's hard to pin it on the coach, but I mean, no, no middle of no spine of our defense. What do you think about putting Josh Allen in? I mean, I played both ways in high school. I'm sure you did too, but I mean, put Josh Allen in at middle linebacker and see what, you know, see what, see yeah. what happens. Yeah, Greg, uh, listen. Oh my God. back here uh we've got kansas city out of the way so now let's bring in mystery guest number two for a discussion on the bay area in california san francisco the whole nine yards and i would introduce my guest this way i guess um this individual has had some up close and firsthand experience watching the 49ers pretty recently and i would i guess introduce you by saying um my condolences go ahead yeah that, my detroit lions they got is about as close as they have since uh 1992 and honestly did a lot better in this game than i probably ever thought they would but uh yeah they blew it at the end uh, by the way, if you didn't recognize the voice, we're talking, of course, with the great Tom Fear, Challenger Tom of Gribble Nation. Uh, where have you been? So nice of you to grace us with your presence on the podcast again. Yeah, I've been uh, mostly doing those CA Route by Route podcasts as of late. Um, those are pretty scripted intensive, so they tend to take up quite a bit of my time. Yeah, so, and I want to circle back to that in a little while when we talk about... Uh, some stuff in San Francisco, but yeah, that, that's definitely, um, a relevant topic. Um, so you got, what's the story behind you even getting tickets to this championship game? How did that come about? So I, I am from Detroit originally. Um, and been a Lions fan my entire life. So my dad and I used to go to games several of them a year. Um, so back like when I was a kid, and we drafted the Lions drafted Barry Sanders, and they started getting receivers like Herman Moore and all that. Things were looking pretty pretty good, uh, which goes into the 1991 season, which in the playoffs they reached the NFC Championship against the Washington then Redskins. Uh, they got smoked in that game, but I remember the thinking at the time was it's like, well, there's a pretty bright and optimistic future ahead of us. Well, didn't really turn out that way. Uh, Right. So I, my thought was, because um, I went and saw the Lions play in SoFi the year they traded Matthew Stafford to the Rams. So like, I might as well see these games when I can. And like, honestly, when are the Lions ever going to be in an NFC Championship game again? I mean, it's very well possible that they could soon, but it's also possible they could go another three decades without going. Right. Yeah. So you went, and I mean, what um, what do you think about this Niners team in general? Like, I mean, obviously, you saw them do what they did. I mean, um, what's your what's your thought on on them from that from that side of this matchup? They they're they got a good team, but they're vulnerable, uh, and they looked vulnerable really ever since the Baltimore game. Uh, they did not look good against the Packers, and they looked really bad against the Lions, especially in the first half. Um, 
what I really tend to saw was, um, and this is kind of an overall observation of the Lions for the entire playoff year, is that Dan Campbell doesn't really seem to make a lot of halftime adjustments, but Kyle Shanahan and a lot of the other coaches do. Um, so basically the 49ers came out in the second half, had everything sorted out. Uh, they had a really, really lucky reception, uh, which really swung the momentum their way, and you know, the Lions just couldn't recover from it. But, um, yeah, it was a way more competitive game against Green Bay than, than I would have thought, and they got smoked by Baltimore. Um, so really just in this matchup coming up Kansas City, it, it's going to be tough. They, they, they're capable of winning, but I would probably say Kansas City is the prohibitive favorite. Yeah, well, it's it's hard to pick against Patrick Mahomes at this point. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's like yeah, any yeah. team that he's on, you gotta you can't not pick him, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's that's the deal with the Niners. I want to talk to you about roads in San Francisco. Sure. Um, here's a trivia question for you: If you asked the average person what the longest bridge in the Bay Area is. I would bet you that at least 90% of those people would say it's the Bay Bridge. <laughs> um, and <clears throat> they're wrong. It is not. Um, the San Mateo Bridge is, of course, the longest bridge in the Bay Area. It's seven miles. Uh, yep. It opened in 1929. I think it is, I think it was, it was the longest bridge in the world when it was opened. Um, it's been expanded and it's been widened you know, in years since then. But, yeah, it's a little bit of a trivia question if you want something that will really throw people for a loop. Um, it, I, you know, it's, it, it's really amazing that in San Francisco, like in New York, how there were, there were simultaneous mega projects going on in the 1930s, you had the Bay Bridge going on at the same time as the Golden Gate Bridge. Um, and they were both, you know, if you've ever been to Golden Gate, you can see the Bay Bridge across the way there. I mean, they're within eyeshot of each other. Um, one of the more remarkable, you know, engineering achievements was the fact that they built both of those projects at the same time. And the Bay Bridge, I've always kind of maintained that the Bay Bridge is the more impressive of the two engineering achievements because of the fact that so much more went into it. You have the two halves of the bridge portion of it, and then you also have the tunnel that cuts through Yerba Buena Island, um, and the fact that you know you're building you know these huge back-to-back -back suspension bridges in the middle of earthquake country, you know which is obviously there's a lot of extreme engineering that goes into that, and then the more recent chapter of this, of course, is the replacement of the eastern part of the Bay Bridge with the I guess they call it the self-anchored suspension span, which was completed about a decade ago. Um, so that's kind of the newest, you know, modern marvel of of San Francisco. But uh, what are your what are your thoughts on like, if you had to pick one of the bridges, like what's where are you going? Like what's your go-to? The the, you the Bay to the see? Bay Bridge. Def this definitely the Bay Bridge. That's by far the most scenic and interesting and. I, I actually had the fortune to have written over at once the older eastern span with my dad after the Loma Prieta earthquake. Um, 
Yeah, it's really kind of interesting how that Western span really held up to that. I, it's really kind of surprising that that could have been that could have been a lot worse on the Eastern span. I know they were they were fortunate that it was just the one, you know, the one you know modest failure of the of the superstructure. But yeah, it, it, um, obviously it had to be it, the Eastern superstructure was kind of at the end of its useful life anyway. They were going to have to do something with it, and I think what they came up with was pretty interesting. Um, yeah, it's pretty solid, and uh, the only thing that. I wish they'd kind of follow up on is they got that nice pedestrian path on it. Uh, you can get to Yerba Buena Island, but you really can't get to San Francisco from there because the older suspension span really doesn't have any room for it. Yeah, I don't know if I, I'm sure that's been talked about. Yeah, like somebody's probably pitched that idea, but I don't know if structurally you can cantilever a walkway off the side of it because that's basically what you'd have to do. Or close a lane of traffic, like with um, with the San Rafael Bridge. They didn't close a lane of traffic, but that extra lane that was held in reserve, that is proved to be a very unpopular decision, let's say. Yeah, so that bridge, it was originally three lanes on each deck, but there was no shoulder. And then they, what did they do? They closed off the right lane, I think. Yeah, that they made it a shoulder originally, and then they made it a bike lane. Is that what they did with it? They did. Um, and some of the bike, the surveys for traffic counts on cyclists are very, very low, and that's what's really upsetting people. Certainly, there'd be way more people going between Oakland and San Francisco by a considerable margin. But um, what, what do you, what do you, what do you, what does it take to get that done on the western span of the Bay Bridge? Um, like you said, can you anchor a lane off to the side of the structure? Probably, it, but it would probably cost a lot of money, and the Bay Area type of move would be to close a lane, and that's just going <laughs> to not make anybody happy. Well, that that same solution made headlines here in New York when they decided to do the same thing with the Brooklyn Bridge. Right. Um, they took a lane of the Manhattan-bound side. And there was all sorts of traffic studies and stuff like that done to sort of justify taking a lane for traffic. I mean, I don't know if it makes any sense logistically. Maybe it does, but I can't imagine that closing a lane is beneficial. I mean, it would make the most sense, right? Like for pedestrian traffic, yeah, like the most likely pedestrian corridor would be from Oakland to San Francisco. Problem is that nobody's doing that. And yeah. you're much better off investing in a second Transbay tube than you are in investing in a pedestrian walkway on the Bay Bridge. I mean, that, that's yeah, just, I was, that's going to be more mention, bang for your buck, right? Yeah, I was about to mention BART. That is really where the transit and pedestrian, that's where everything is between those two cities. Right. Um, so the the one interesting aspect to getting people across that bridge that I don't think people really ever talk about unless like it comes up on like some sort of wider thought on the legality of it is lane splitting. It's very very popular for motorcycles on the Bay Bridge. Yes, the dreaded lane splitting which we have here in New York it's it's kind of one of those unwritten unspoken things that happens that everybody knows about but nobody really you know brings it up 
So yeah, I, I'm I'm familiar with that, but it's it's more of like a it's a way for motorcyclists to you know do what they got to do. I guess I don't know. Yeah. Um, as far as the the roads are concerned, now you've been doing a lot of work on your California route by route podcast work. Um, lately, you've been uploading a lot of stuff on California Highway 1, the history of the Pacific Coast Highway, or the PCH, as it's known for short. Um, in San Francisco, you know, and there's, I mean, we could spend hours and hours talking about the PCH, as you've already demonstrated there, but um, what is, what would be sort of your Cliff Notes version of the PCH history not even history, just like an overview of it in San Francisco. It's actually Cabrillo in San Francisco. Yeah. There's three sections of uh, Highway 1. You got PCH, which is south of Oxnard. Cabrillo, which is uh, north of Gaviota Pass to the Golden Gate Bridge. Then you got the shoreline. Uh, it's kind of interesting because like, I think we were talking about in the latest episode on uh, California, California route by route, like how that kind of colloquialism kind of came, came to be because um, even PCH was originally Roosevelt Highway. So it's kind of interesting. It's like the grapevine on I-5, like uh, how that happened. Kind of just kind of develops organically, it seems, sometimes. But uh, San Francisco is kind of interesting, um, and we talked about this quite a bit, I think, in uh, episode 2.06. Um, Originally, there was no way across Golden Gate Park for Highway 1 to get across um, uh, not only Golden Gate Park, but the Presidio. So the Division of Highways had to get a waiver from the Army to actually construct a highway through the Presidio. It really wasn't so much a problem with Golden Gate Park. So originally, Highway 1 swung into downtown Van Ness before the Golden Gate Bridge was constructed and actually multiplexed US 101 over Hyde Street Pier. Um, and when the bridge was built, it continued to the Golden Gate Bridge along US 101. Uh, what's interesting about Park Presidio Boulevard, uh, which is north of Golden Gate Park, it's right before the Golden Gate Bridge, it actually was required by the Army to be full limited access. So it's like a very, very, very early version. I believe it is the first segment of what would technically be freeway in San Francisco. I didn't realize that. That's interesting. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, off the top of my head, I want to say that was completed in early 1944. I see. Um... Yeah, the, the PCH, I, I've, I had the chance to drive pretty much all of it in the Bay Area five years ago. Um, I, I think that the most famous parts of it, the parts of it that you always see in the pictures are more like south of Monterey, like down by Big Sur. Mm -hmm. uh, the Bixby Bridge is down that way. But I, I found the section of it in Marin County to be really neat and really beautiful. Um, yeah. I, and I don't know that that section of it gets talked about a lot. It's kind of it's kind of off the beaten path, you know. It, it's it's actually easy to miss. Yeah, it's easy it's easy to miss the turns for it once you're on the on the north side of the Golden Gate Bridge, um, and it's just this unassuming little, little side windering country road that goes up and over the hills, and you've got the Pacific Ocean right beneath you, and. Um, That's 
it, it's it's fantastic. I for scenic drives, it's right up there. It's at the top of my list in the Bay Area for sure. Yeah, I did a uh, three-parter on Highway One north of the Golden Gate Bridge. Uh, I want to say two years ago, and it was actually very popular because, like you said, just nobody ever really talks about it. Um, and it's really it's if you're looking at like top ten state highway segments in California, I'd put it up there with with Big Sur. Um, and you, you get a lot less tourists, especially when you get north of Bodega Bay, like around the Fort Bragg area, Mendocino. Yeah, it's just a really pleasant um, drive. I, I like it in the winter, especially because the climate's kind of somewhat stable up there, unlike Big Sur, because you don't have those giant mountains. So it's just kind of a great place to get away, especially in the winter, if you want somewhere that's kind of moderate, doesn't see a lot of people. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that, yeah. So to avoid the tourists, I would recommend the PCH in Marin County. If you got to do the tourist trap nonsense, then I would say take the time out of your day and drive Lombard Street, which is that very, well, you, you'll recognize it when you see it. It's that very curvy uh, street that goes down the hill, not, not too far from the Coit Tower in San Francisco. Um, I, I couldn't resist. I, I had to do that once. But yeah, the problem gotta... is, <laughs> the problem is that when you do that road and you get towards the bottom of the hill, it's kind of a blind curve as you go around that last <laughs> bend in the street. Well, you gotta be careful because there are so many goddamn pedestrians taking a picture up the hill when you're at the bottom of it. You gotta watch out for people <laughs> running, like jaywalking and all that crap. So, um, so yeah, that that's something just to keep an eye out for if you're ever. If you ever have the inclination to do that, I don't know. That doesn't seem yeah. like your cup of tea, but oh, I ran it. Well, of course I've, you've run it. Yeah, I'm, I've, I'm, yeah, I'm I've, I've, I've actually run this. I didn't even realize you couldn't go in the street. There's signs saying they're very small and they're hard to see if like there's a giant crowd. So yeah, I just was staying in San Francisco at the corner of uh, Lombard and Van Ness, and like yeah, screw it, I'll go for a run. So I go run up Russian Hill, which is the hill Lombard Street crosses, just to go run down the street, and I see the sign on the bottom, like, oh, well, <laughs> can't take it back now. Yeah, right. Um, but there's actually a even more curvy street in San Francisco, which I wish I had pictures of. I drove it once years and years ago. It's Vermont Street. Uh, I believe it has one additional curve, and it's slightly steeper. Hmm. It's uh, southeast corner, southwest corner of the city, close to Great Highway. But that one doesn't get the tourists, though. No, and it's not exactly the most photogenic road out there. It's basically just the neighborhood street, uh, whereas Lombard Street's basically you're right in downtown San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well. There aren't that many freeways in San Francisco because of freeway revolts and whatnot, and we could spend all night talking about <laughs> that subtopic. But the freeways that do exist in San Francisco, um, I think that for bang for your buck, I think from a scenery standpoint, they're quite lovely to drive. The problem is that you got to catch them at a time when traffic isn't an issue. Although I, I generally feel like traffic is generally in your favor on 280. For most of its length, especially north of uh, Highway 92, 
Um, the approach into San Francisco on 280 is sneaky good. And what I mean by that is it's not it's an approach that doesn't get talked about very much, but is really nice. Um, if you like the urban landscape and all that, you know, the approach into downtown from 280 is, is pretty interesting. It has a killer skyline view. It has the best skyline view from any freeway in the city. Yeah, I, I, I would put it above the James Lick freeway. That's for sure. Um, I mean, it is nice to see the skyline coming in from the Bay Bridge, too. But if you're staying on the peninsula, yeah, I would say that that's... The 280 approach is the better of the two, yeah. Um, yeah. Speaking of speaking of the James Lick, you know, 101 coming down from downtown San Francisco, down the peninsula past SFO, the Bayshore Freeway. Um, I would say that's pretty much like... Well, there's there's the two main streets of the peninsula, right? There's the 101, which is closer to the bay side, and then there's the 280, which is closer to the uh, the Pacific Coast side of the peninsula. Um, 101 is probably the heavier trafficked of the two, I would imagine. Um, oh, by, by a large margin. Is it by a large margin? Yeah. Yeah, there's I just mean, not that many access points to 280, so it's like you kind of get on it like around Santa Clara and you just you're 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 committed to it basically. Yeah. But I th- I think that the length of 280 in general is is really really nice. If you're into scenery on a suburban freeway, which is not, you know, the two are very hard to come by together. Um I I I find that 280 is a very nice drive. Yeah, yeah, it's um, right up against the San Andreas Fault, too, so it's got a lot of really unique geography, especially like around Crystal Lake, um, a lot of really undeveloped areas, like kind of sitting there in the, mo- the foothills of the Santa Cruz Mountains. Like It's really surprising, like none of that ever really got snatched up for development. Yeah. Well, what um, I know this I know we're talking about San Francisco and all that, but um, the Raiders are no longer in Oakland. So, <laughs> should we consider the East Bay part of the canon here now, or what do you what do you think? Yeah, I'd say so. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's now it's, a one team metro area, right? It's kind of a strange dynamic. I've never really gotten a good handle on this so it kind of seems like most Raider fans are just completely okay with the team moving to Las Vegas because they're going to go to Las Vegas at some point um, and I don't think it I mean I go to the Coliseum for a lot for baseball games and that doesn't seem like that's going to be something that's going to be continuing for very long but that is a very very old by modern standards stadium and I can understand why it's not very popular for like an NFL fan base to go to anymore. Yeah, although I, I do know people who swear by the Coliseum for baseball. Oh yeah, um, I, I'm one of them. Like I, I, lo- yeah. I, it's one of the few times I actually use mass transit. I take the BART station from uh, Livermore, Dublin, and I just drop you off right there at the Coliseum. It's That's perfect. right. Yeah, yeah. When the Warriors were still playing in at Oracle, this was five years ago. Um, I, I I took BART from somewhere north of Oakland where I was staying, and it, I got off at that station there. And the two, the, the old Oracle was right across the street from the Coliseum. And, yeah, you could just you could get right off at that station, and you're right there. Yeah. So it's a very, very easy uh, venue to get to. 
uh, transit-wise. Um, but yeah, it is kind of it is kind of weird how now the Bay Area is. I'm still getting used to the fact that there's only one team now. So you know what? We can annex the East Bay for the purposes of this show. Um, and I'll drop you with a few honorable mentions, and you can kind of go with wherever you want with this too. But um, one of the only tunnels in America that is four bores is the Caldecott Tunnel on Highway 24, just east of downtown Oakland. Uh, the original two bores opened in 1937. The third bore was added in 1964, and the fourth bore opened in 2013. And yes, I have. I did make the point of driving through all four of them when I was in San Francisco <laughs> five years ago. I had to get through all of them. Um, Oakland has its share of interesting freeways, too. You have the Nimitz Freeway, which is I-880. That highway gained national and international attention due to its uh, collapse in the 1989 earthquake that we made reference to before it was rebuilt on a new structure using new California building codes and it has stood the test of time at least up to this point um, I think that 880 generally gets most of the north-south traffic on the East Bay um, compared with 580 which is the MacArthur Freeway but 580 is not a bad drive either I was saying earlier that 280 is a nice drive nice suburban drive well 580 is not too bad either um 580 is very pretty but it's very very traffic heavy too yeah yeah that's 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 one where you got to catch the traffic just right but otherwise it's a very pleasant experience if you catch it at an off-peak hour um and then of course we have our favorite interstate in the united states yeah. in the east bay you know what i'm gonna say I'm going to let you talk about 238 for a second. Interstate 238. Um, I, I love it. Like, honestly, the reason because I, like, I really love Interstate 238 is because there's nothing interesting at all about that highway except for the fact it has a weird interstate number because California would not cooperate and just sign two highways as 180. So, for some context, the reason why Interstate 238 exists uh, at the time, you had California State Route 180, then you had every derivative of X80 upward to 980 you already used. This is kind of like in the waning years of the Embarcadero Freeway, which was at the time California State Route 480. So, the compromise to make that corridor non-chargeable interstate was, was just to sign it as Interstate 238. It was at the time, just California State Route 238. So there's a segment of the highway, which is on the surface, that still exists as state highway. Uh, the thinking, from what everything I've read in the AASHTO database, seems to suggest that the thinking was that the brand recognition with having that as an interstate to pull the truck traffic off the MacArthur Freeway, where the trucks are banned north of 380, yeah, 238, Right. Yeah. Uh, was that's worth an, it. That's an important point to make. Yeah, the trucks are not allowed on the MacArthur Freeway. Correct. Um, so basically, the truck route is Interstate 238 and I-880 north to Oakland. So it's it's basically just the brand recognition thing. Um, and, and I think in modern times, it doesn't really mean a lot. But certainly in 1980s, when you're you know you're dealing with just 
maps and stuff like that, uh, it wasn't probably the expectation that you were going to have a quality highway, especially as a long-distance trucker, if it wasn't an interstate. Now, in California, that's not true. A lot of the state highways are interstate standard, but that's not common. I'd say it's, co- it's kind of somewhat common nowadays, but it wasn't common in the United States back then. Yeah. So elevating it to an interstate was functional and symbolic at the same yes. time. Any other um, honorable mentions that I didn't get to? So east, wise, that I should east, mention. East Bay, a couple items that come to mind. Um, you have the ruins of the Kennedy Tunnel. So this predates the Caldecott Tunnel above. Uh, what is modern Highway 24 on Old Tunnel Road. It's very easy to approach. The old portal is pretty easy to find. There's some pretty decent um, plaques and monuments. Um, I always thought that was kind of an interesting site to visit. Then you have uh, California State Route 77, which is surprisingly a freeway, what's constructed of it. It is, by my estimate, uh, the shortest sign state route in california because it has an absurd amount of california state route 77 state highway space i think there's like eight of them in a half mile span okay so it's just a very bizarre and there's not it's a partial interchange with interstate 880 it's not a complete one uh, and it's been dieted in the third i believe in the last decade somewhat but uh, the portion they did construct yeah, it's freeway grade. I don't. It was intended to continue all the way, I believe, to Highway 24, somewhere in the vicinity of Dublin. It's never been officially canceled by the state, uh, but I never, I believe, don't believe it ever had a route alignment adoptment adopted uh, east of the MacArthur Freeway or MacArthur Maze. Hmm. Okay. Anything on the uh, west side of the bay that uh, we missed? Devil Slide. Everyone talks about Devil Slide, which yeah. is the 1937 to 2014 alignment of Highway 1 when it was replaced by the Tom Lantos tunnels. Yeah. Uh, but there's an even older alignment uphill on Old Pedro Mountain Road, uh, which is no longer accessible to cars, which is kind of like a mini version of the Bay Area's, let's say, ridge route. Uh, I think a lot of California people will get that reference. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> You're, you're laughing because I think you know where I'm coming from. Yeah, with this. I know where you're going with that. Yep. <laughs> uh, it basically goes over that mountain ridge, and it was one of California's first asphalted roads before it was even a state highway. I believe it was paved in the 1910s. So it's a very interesting trail. You can take bikes on it, though. Hmm. All right. Um, and lastly, I know we didn't bring up San Jose, but we probably should mention yeah. them in passing, too, because, Christ, San Francisco's <laughs> stadium is practically in San Jose, in Santa yep. Clara. It's just the next town over, I think. Yep. Um, I would say if there's one freeway in San Jose you should drive, it's California Highway 87, the Guadalupe Parkway. They call it a parkway, but it is actually a freeway, and it takes you right through downtown and out to San Jose Airport. Um that's the one that I would say, if you got to drive one, that's my pick. Got a lot of button copy on it, too. Yeah, there was still quite a lot of button copy in the South Bay five years ago. I don't know if that's still the case. 
It's but, still um, the, they they didn't take partake District Four. This all this is Caltrans District Four. They didn't really partake in a lot of SB one signed replacement fund projects. So there's a quite a bit of button copy to find, and especially freeways that were built in the seventies through nineties. Uh, that button copy is likely not going anywhere anytime soon. Oh, fantastic! That is music to the ears of fans of old signs. Uh, and one last question for you. Um, in the Super Bowl, who do you like? Kansas City. Probably by at least a touchdown. Uh, they're getting their healthy at the right time. Uh, like, Kind of looking at how they were playing early in the season compared to now. They're peaking at the right time. San Francisco has looked pretty wonky ever since the Baltimore game. Um, I mean, they have a chance, but uh, I just don't see... Just coming down to it at the end, like Patrick Mahomes versus Brock Purdy, I am going to take Patrick Mahomes to get the clutch touchdowns and make the plays that I don't think Brock Purdy is quite capable of making. Tom, thank you so much. Good to have no you on the problem. podcast again. Don't be a stranger. Come back again Absolutely. sometime. You can find his work on the California Route by Route podcast. You can also find him, of course, on GribbleNation.org. And that's going to do it for our look at San Francisco. When we come back, we'll have our third mystery guest to... We're going to actually talk some football and talk some X's and O's in our next segment. And we'll do that right after this on the Super Bowl 58 preview show here on the Gribble Nation Roadcast. Stick around. Let's go to Calvin in Kaisertown. Calvin, how are you? Hey, how's it going, Nate? I've been better. Yeah, first things first, I'm certainly not going to suggest that uh, Josh Allen plays the middle line. Cool. Thank you. Um, I appreciate that. Yeah, I mean, that's ridiculous. But uh, I will say, maybe it's looking into uh, what foot um, Bass kicks with. But, I don't know. First time listener, long time caller. Let's go to Sean in South Carolina. Sean, what's up? How you doing? Great. Uh, I'm just curious. All these guys saying. Um, anyways. All right, back here on the Super Bowl preview show, we have one final segment for you, and that requires an introduction to our third mystery guest of the evening. You know, we haven't done this in past preview shows here on the roadcast we haven't actually brought somebody on to actually talk football we've talked about the roads of both cities in the past but we've never actually you know dissected the game itself from a football standpoint so we're going to do that in this final segment of the program and to help me out in that respect is mystery guest number three um welcome in sir uh first time long time how are you <laughs> Should I speak in a different voice? <laughs> uh, no, good good to be with you. Yes, uh, hi, Rob. It's good to hear from you. <laughs> good to hear from you as well. It's been a while, so I'm, I'm glad to connect and uh, talk about a topic near and dear to my heart, which is obviously, you know, sports and football and the Super Bowl. I mean, I go all the way back to Super Bowl twelve when I was a kid. I, I clearly remember Dallas-Denver. Uh, which wasn't a very good game, but that's the first one I remember. So whether the games are good or bad, I still I still care. 
bottom line. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's the one game of the year that I think every person in America knows about, whether they have a rooting interest in the game or not. Like, you hear the word Super Bowl this time of year every year, and you know what it involves. Um, and so it's, it's the event that everybody either knows about or looks forward to or whatnot. And um, so it's good to have the resident sportscaster and the road enthusiast community <laughs> on for a segment to talk some football here. Um, so San Francisco and Kansas City. Um, give me your opening statement for the game as a whole. Well, let's see. I can start with the fact that I've been to San Francisco and I've never been to Kansas City. But beside that, um, these have not been the best two teams all year. Kansas City got right, got hot at the right time, and you you cannot you struggle to beat the Chiefs in the postseason, where the Niners had been the best team in the NFC once. The Eagles, once the Philadelphia Eagles began to struggle, uh, it became the Niners' conference to win, and they went on and, and won it. Um, we can talk all day about what the Lions did in the NFC Championship game and you know, going for it on fourth down as much as they did, but the bottom line is that I, I thought, and San Francisco hasn't played their best football yet, which is scary going into the Super Bowl, but I, I do think the Niners were the were the the best team coming out of the NFC. So that's kind of my opening statement is you've got a great, a legitimately great team in the Niners against a team that's a borderline dynasty, if not a dynasty already in the Chiefs looking for their third Super Bowl with Patrick Mahomes at the helm. Have you gotten tired of the Chiefs? And the, and the reason I asked that question is because I, I said this previously that the, the Chiefs are the new Patriots. Like, mm -hmm. we had 15 years of the Patriots, and they did what they did in that period. And when the Patriots beat the Rams in that god-awful Super Bowl, that was their sixth god -awful. Super Bowl, they won number six, and then we looked at that. After that game, we looked at them, and we said, you know what, this is probably it for them. And to win six in that amount of time... Nobody's going to do that again. Well, it turns out that it only took a year for that to actually start happening again. Because, like clockwork, Mahomes won his first the following year. So, you know, you as a Pittsburgh fan, me as a Tennessee fan, Gribble Nation's Doug as a Buffalo fan, our friend Laura M.D. Rhodes is a Ravens fan, the thing yeah. that the four of us all have in common is that we're fighting for second place in the AFC. We're fighting for that chance to play them in the conference championship. That's how it feels at this point. Yeah. And we yeah. felt that way for 15 years with New England. And it kind of feels like we're going to go through that again for another 15-year period with this Kansas City team. And for Laura and Doug, I feel for both of them because the Chiefs came and played in their buildings you know, they went and played in Orchard Park, and that turned out to be no big deal. It was a close game, but no big deal. And then what the Chiefs went and did down in Baltimore, I mean, Baltimore has got a long time to think about how undisciplined they played and how bad they played in a big game. But, again, credit to Mahomes and company. But to your question, the bottom line is dynasties are boring. People don't like dynasties. They're impressive, 
but they're boring. People hate the Yankees because they've been a dynasty since 1921, essentially. You know, the Patriots, everybody got tired of them. And let's face it, we were all rooting against the Patriots. Anyone who played the Patriots was America's team. That's what it, that's what it was. Uh, Cowboys, same thing. Let's be honest. Who likes the Cowboys except for the gaggle of Cowboy fans? Um so when you're talking about a dynasty, yes, you're talking about teams that people are tired of. Of course I'm tired of the Chiefs. So I don't care about the Taylor Swift factor. Factor, I'll throw that in right now. I think she's charming as all can be. I have no interest in listening to her music or ever attending a concert unless somehow it involves a road meet or someone pays me to go. Um, that's, you know, her music doesn't, you know, I'm a Beatles fan and that's where, you know, I have other music that I love, but. I have all the respect in the world for her and her music and her ability to charm. And she is charming to watch in the booth. So people, you know, people got to get over that piece of it. But I'm not sick of her. I'm definitely tired of seeing the Chiefs win, but I admire it. I, I think the world of Andy Reid, I think the world of Patrick Mahomes, Kelsey's going to the Hall of Fame as far as I'm concerned. There's a lot of greatness on that Kansas City Chiefs team. I think you hit on something that's very important and that, yeah, dynasties are boring, but it's okay to admire them from afar. Sure. And just like I admired the Patriots from afar for all those years, I'm kind of in awe of what this Kansas City team is doing right now. It, it sucks as an AFC fan that now <laughs> I'm blocked for another generation by another immortal coaching quarterback duo, but... Damn, it's impressive, especially in today's NFL, where it's so hard to retain talent year after year. And some teams just have that ability to build rosters. You know, I, I was it was I, I'm reminded of this point all the time where some teams just know some teams just make the right choices. Like just look at Kansas yes. City's running back, Isaiah Pacheco. It's a seventh round draft pick. Yeah. I mean, it, it's – and, you know, as a Tennessee fan, you know that I'm a big fan of Derrick Henry. And, Absolutely. You know, he is a great player. We could not get near the Super Bowl with him. Now, I think that we came closer than most would have. You know, we had that one run that with him. Um, but, you know – for as great as a running back can be, you are no closer to the Super Bowl with a great running back than you are without one, in my estimation. Uh, so and it goes to show how tough it is to make a, a Super Bowl run. You need the pieces. You need the offensive line. You need a great quarterback. You need receivers, to your point. Yeah. Um, so, But I, I think... Greatness, we talk about how great Mahomes and Andy Reid are. Can we take a second to talk about how great the defense has been this year? Oh, please do. Because when you think of Kansas City, I think up until this year, you always thought of them as, oh, it's Patrick Mahomes zinging the ball all around the field and then marching down the field at will and scoring 70 bajillion points every week. You never yep. thought of them as a team that had a decent defense. Um, this year, that's different. They are, they didn't win games the same way this year than they have in years past. They, they had to lean on their defense quite a bit. Um, in that championship game that you alluded to in Baltimore, they were shut out in the second half. 
and they held Lamar Jackson to 10 points for the game. You know, that's, sure that to me represents a seismic shift in the way that Kansas City has played football the last few years, whereas before it was very offensive-centric, but this year it's been very defensive-centric. And the guy who I think we have to acknowledge is one of the great defensive coordinators of modern times is Steve Spagnuolo. I totally, totally agree. Um, there are a handful of defensive coordinators that need Hall of Fame consideration. He's one of them, and maybe he gets his chance to be a head coach again. Maybe that happens down the road. But he's one of those people who just, you know, knows how to put together a great defense. Uh, and and it's, it's incredible. You know, the, the thing about Bill Belichick was where did he make his name? as a defensive coordinator with the Giants and Bill Parcells. That was a big piece of the puzzle for Belichick. So I agree with you about Spags. He is uh, an all-time great when it comes to building defenses. And can we say enough about Andy Reid? You know, you, you said it earlier that th- this game to me is kind of a legacy game for Kansas City. More so for Reid than it is for Mahomes. Because I think that, I mean, just looking at age, Andy probably doesn't have as many years left with this team as Patrick does. I think that's fair to say. Um, Andy's at two Super Bowls right now. If he gets a third, he's in the immortal class at that point. No question. No question. You might be able to argue at this point he already is. But if he gets that third ring... um, any coach that wins three is in that, you know, Mount Rushmore class of coaches. And if you think about it, he's already made four because he's lost a couple. He lost with the Eagles and he lost one with the Chiefs already. And you can't ignore that. Marv Levy made the Hall of Fame as a coach, not only for the Bills, of course, but that's where he really made his name. But Marv Levy was great with the Chiefs at one time and other stops along the way. But that made him a Hall of Famer. So when you look at Andy Reid, you look at all the good that he has accomplished. He has won. He's already a Hall of Famer. There's no doubt about it. But this, as you said, puts him to a level where we're talking about him with the Knowles, the Belichicks, uh, the Bill Walshes, the Shulas. He's really climbing into a whole different territory with a championship in this 58th Super Bowl. And it might happen. This is a jump ball game as far as I'm concerned right now. I think I have a feeling who I'm picking, but I, I, I think it's very close. Yeah, it's an, interest, it's an interesting game on a lot of levels. And the last thing I want to say about Andy Reid is that this is a guy who people in Philadelphia wanted to run out of town. And he left. He I don't remember if he took time off before getting the Kansas City job, but... Either way, he goes there, and he's doing what he's doing. And, look, I have a soft spot for Philly. You know, my mom's family is from northern Delaware. They were Eagles fans. You know, so I I don't want to – I like to see the Eagles win. I was over the moon when they beat the Patriots in the Super Bowl a few years ago. Me too. (laughs) (laughs) As were a lot of people. Uh, But, you know what, It it did put a smile on my face seeing Andy stick it to them in the game last year. Just not going to lie, that, that did cross my mind watching that. And then the other thing is that, you know, they couldn't wait to run Jonathan Gannon out of town, you know, their defensive coordinator. He goes to Arizona and is the head coach, and he beats them to knock them off 
the number one seed in the division in uh, the NFC East in the second to last game of the season. So, you know, and here's it's, it's so yeah. funny how, you know, you can't wait to run somebody out of town, but you, you come to find that, you know, maybe you had it pretty good with the guys that you couldn't wait to get rid of. And Andy is fourth all time in wins at 258. He's 70 in back of Shula. That would take a while still. I know Belichick still wants to get to Shula as well, and he's at 302. But that is a very impressive resume when you think about it. Uh, all the years from 99 to 2012 that he stayed in Philly and then jumped straight to Kansas City beginning in 2013 and has won at nearly a 65% rate. 641 winning percentage. That is mighty impressive. That is mind-boggling. And to do it with two different teams at the rate that he's done it. I mean, the Eagles, he won. Obviously, he didn't have the Super Bowl success, but he won a lot of games with the Eagles, too. You know, the people, it's easy to forget about that now because of the success he's having in Kansas City. But, yeah, to have that kind of monumental success with two franchises is... I don't know if that's unprecedented, but it's it's got to be close. It's got to be great close. Coaches, they all did it with one team, right? I yeah, mean, Sh- Shula did a bunch of his work with the Colts and then moved over to the oh, Dolphins. That's right, yeah. Um, but beyond him, there aren't many. Let's put it that way. Paul Brown certainly with the Browns and then with the Bengals later on. Remember, he started the Bengals. Marty Schottenheimer, his eighth all-time, he moved from a, a few places, San Diego, Cleveland, uh, Washington later on. So, but, but overall, Dan Reeves with the Giants, the Falcons, and the Broncos. So there are a handful, but you're right. Uh, George Hallis with the Bears. Belichick, yes, certainly the, the brief stretch with the Browns. Andy Reid, a couple of teams. Tom Landry with the Cowboys. Curly Lambeau with the Packers, and on and on. Well, let's talk about San Francisco. Um, you have see, this is what's so interesting about this game to me is that you have you have Patrick Mahomes, the the heir apparent to Tom Brady, basically, um, first round draft pick. You know, he's got the contract for life now with Kansas City, basically. Yeah, sure. And is. he's going up against a guy named Brock Purdy, who nobody had <laughs> even heard of. Uh, a year ago, um, Mr. Irrelevant in the draft two years ago. Um, That's right. The contrast is incredible. And the fact that he, of all people, you know, when the Niners drafted Trey Lance and they had Jimmy Garoppolo and they had all these other guys, and yet somehow it it finds its way to him, of all people. And he's the guy to grab it by the horns. It's just an incredible story. And I and I, it's going to get talked about a ton going up to this game, but I I can't move on without mentioning that he he's been a wonderful story. Uh, he has played exceptionally well. He's in the conversation for um, most valuable player, which I I don't think he'll win. I, I think it's been Lamar Jackson all along, uh, and I think Christian McCaffrey as well. But you can't deny, you know, people use that term game manager. Well, every quarterback's a game manager. It's just to what degree are you managing the game? And Brock Purdy did a lot of things and played badly down the stretch. And his eyes looked a little wide in the first couple of playoff games. But 
when the when things were on the ropes against the Packers first of all and then against the Lions he came up with big drives in both cases that gives him a whole kind of legitimacy uh that he's a he's a big time football player those are huge drives the one against the Packers um you know they were in bad shape and then obviously against the Lions they're getting their doors blown off and they wake up and it's Brock Purdy leading the way I realize he's got playmakers I'm not going to disrespect that fact but I'm not going to take that away from Purdy either now I'm very curious what the biggest brightest lights of all with you know, worldwide upwards of a billion people watching might be thinking of this young quarterback um, who's on, you know, the greatest stage of them all. I think there was a stat somewhere, it may have been before the NFC Championship, that when Brock Purdy is on the field with Christian McCaffrey, Debo Samuel, and George Kittle, they don't lose. Like... I'll tell you, you know what? You could put me out there at quarterback with those playmakers, <laughs> and I might actually look halfway decent. Like, and I'm, yeah. not sure, I'm not saying that to disrespect Brock Purdy, but um, it must be said that the Niners' offense is loaded with playmakers. And you named really a bunch of key names right there. Um, it, the best offense to me is always the kind that can be that balanced. Debo is a tremendous football player. Uh, Ayuk, I mean, you know, you, you think about these guys. And the, I mean, Ayuk made a catch that was off the charts in the NFC Championship game. You, you think about these guys, and then balancing that throwing game, and of course Kittle, who I haven't even mentioned, and what a stud he is, and he might not even be, he might be the best tight end in the Super Bowl this year. But he might not be. That's how crazy it is. Yeah. But Christian McCaffrey is one thing that the 49ers have. He is a bulldozing running back that allows you some yin and yang offensively, and that's very important to me. I love a balanced offense like that, where you don't have to necessarily put it on Brock Purdy to go out and throw for 350 and win the MVP. You can just sufficiently run, you know, and have McCaffrey win the MVP with 125 yards, Purdy throws for, you know, 215, 220, and you go, go and win yourself a championship. You you can do that. That's how good this offense is. Having a guy like Christian McCaffrey is invaluable if you're going up against a guy like Patrick Mahomes. Because there, there is that thought process of, well – I got to keep the ball away from him as much as possible. And if you can hold the ball, and this is what the Bills tried to do in that divisional playoff game, if you remember. They tried to play keep oh, away, yeah. and it, they almost got away with it. Um, yeah, let's hold the ball for 40 minutes. And the Niners' offense is built in a way that they can do that. Um, it's going to be really interesting to see how that Niners' run game goes up against that Chiefs' defensive front. Um, that's a fascinating matchup for me. You know, the Super Bowls are always games of matchups, right? We always look at, you know, individual matchups. We look at unit matchups like, you know, receivers versus cornerbacks, that kind of thing. Um, but I look at, I look at that matchup as being key. The other one that I see as absolutely telling, and we may see this very early on in this game, is 
San Francisco must, if they want to win this game, San Francisco must get a pass rush. Because otherwise they're going to get picked apart. And I agree. The, the matchup of San Francisco's pass rushers and Nick Bosa and company, they have to get by Kansas City's tackles. Because if they don't, Patrick Mahomes can sit back there and he can pick apart that San Francisco secondary because they are not – San Francisco secondary is not elite. And I, no. it, what the thing that's really interesting this year that's really been telling is that other than Kelsey, who on paper scares you as a receiver for Kansas City? Yet every time you look up, they're always open. It's one of the, it's one of the most amazing things you can see how – um, you know, it, it doesn't matter who's on the field. They always scheme open. You know, maybe, maybe it is talent. I don't know. But, you know, they got guys like, they got that dope, uh, young Joka running around on the field at wide receiver. And they're still getting open and scoring touchdowns. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's amazing. It is, it is impressive. And I, and I look at the depth chart for the Chiefs. And first of all, you want no part of Kadarius Tony being a playmaker in this game because you'd be very concerned if he was. But you do have receivers in that group. I like Marquez Valdez-Scantling, for instance. He just finds a way to come up with big plays. And if you can get Pacheco running, which I'm not saying is going to happen because you're going against a good defense, but if you can balance out the throwing game of Mahomes and company with Pacheco and Clyde Edwards-Hilaire, now you got a little something going, but it's it's a lot to ask. Let's face it. You're trying to get the ball to Valdez Scantling. You're trying to get the ball to Justin Watson, who's made some good plays. And then, of course, there's number 87. I forget his name off the top of my head. He has a girlfriend. Yeah, it's drawing a blank for me right now. The, yeah. the, thing, with, the thing with Kansas City and their run game, they don't need to get a whole lot from it. Like if no. you look at if you look at how they've played in the playoffs, they have not had a very impressive run game. I think that there's right. only been, I think I think Pacheco's only averaging three and a half yards a carry. Yeah, but yeah, that's right. a, but that is enough to change the pace, give the defense a different look, move the ball down the field well enough that you set yourself up in a position where you're third and two, instead of third and eight. But there's so much talent on that Chiefs team, and you know the game plan has to be don't let them get the chunk plays. It's got to be the approach. You've got you've to set them in third and eight, and then don't let them get eight. You've got to have Mahomes check down and you know get them off the field. Is that possible? Boy, a lot of teams have struggled with it. I know this has not been their best year, but you know the, this, this Chiefs team kind of has that I don't know that I can find a football comparison, but there are some Yankee teams I remember that made a run into the playoffs, and I remember thinking, they're dead. There's, you know, this team is done. And then all of a sudden, it's a, it's a dog pile on the field at you know, Shea Stadium, and they've gone and won the World Series. You just they're mentioned that, the one I was thinking of. Yeah, nine, and 99. 99, I remember that Yankee team going into the playoffs and thinking, they're tired. I think they might be fried. And there I am in the upper deck at Yankee Stadium in game four as they're sweeping the Braves, not even beating the Braves, sweeping them. So, yeah. you know, so it goes. One more thing about the Chiefs I'll throw out offensively because I have to at least 
in my you know uh, broadcasting world, give a little bit of a shout out to uh, right tackle Lucas Nang, who is playing uh, as a backup right now to Juwan Taylor, but a New Canaan High School graduate who I covered down here in Fairfield County in the FCX. So, gotta give a shout out to Lucas. All right, good for you. That's awesome. Yeah, on the verge of winning another ring, which is pretty amazing. Well, hey, somebody's got to win the rings around here, right? That's right. Uh, That's right. So, I, as I look at this, as we get back to matchups, um, yes, Super Bowl edges. I think Kansas City has a decisive. I mean, this isn't rocket science, but they have a decisive edge at quarterback. <laughs> I agree. Um, I think they've got an edge in the coaching staff. Kyle Shanahan might be really good. He's going up against a borderline immortal in Andy Reid. Yep. Um, special teams. Now, this is something. Remember when I did the game with you and Darian? One of the things that I brought up was special teams, right? Special yep. teams always rears its head in big games. Um, Harrison Bucker is going to make his kicks. I would bet my next paycheck he doesn't miss in this game. Uh, Jake Moody. Second year player, Super Bowl. And he's been he sketchy. Go, he, you know, he might go five for five on field goals. I don't know. Maybe that's going to happen. But Who I'm knows? betting on it. No. You know? And if the game comes down to his foot, I wouldn't bet on San Francisco, right? And I agree. These games seem, especially in the last 15 years, these games come down to these, these kinds of things. And, you know, you, the team that has the edge in special teams almost always wins the game. So that's, yeah. that's, that's kind of an out-of-the-box way of looking at this, but that's kind of one that's one argument for Kansas City if you're looking for another one. Um, no, I, I, I think that's a solid uh, special teams unit. I'm looking at their names as well. Butker and Tommy Townsend, the punter, and, you know, you, you got to have good punt returns and kick returns, and, and you got guys like Richie James back there. And I, I, I think, yeah, I, I think Kansas City has a definitive edge there. I'll give a little love to Ray Ray McLeod, the former Steeler, as a punt and kick returner, but he, there he has moments where you think he's going to dazzle you, and watch, next Sunday he'll run, he'll run one back. Never been a punt return for a touchdown in the Super Bowl, by the way. Do you realize that? Kickoff return, yes. Yeah, I I didn't know there's never been a punt return. Is that right? I believe so. I heard that one recently, and I thought about it and said, yeah, I can remember the kickoff returns. You know, Devin Hester, Fulton Walker, guys like that. But I don't remember a punt return. Yeah, that's interesting you say that. Yeah, because I remember kickoff returns, too. One of my first Super Bowl memories was Desmond Howard. Yeah, there's another one. That's he another won, a, one. won an MVP. That's right. Yep, that's right. I think he's the only special teams player to win Super Bowl MVP, if I'm not mistaken. I believe you are correct. That's, I mean, I I couldn't possibly come up with another one, but no, sure I believe that, you that's are gotta correct. Be the only one. Um, and the, the so last Super Bowl edge I'm gonna throw out there quickly, defense. I, I, I think Kansas City's got the best overall defense in this game. Boy, that's a tough one. I, I, yeah, that's I'm, – I'm, 
And I think That's that this, a, and I think this also one. comes down to scheme, right? Because as we mentioned before, Steve Spagnolo has done a masterful job with this defense this year. Yes, he knows yes. he is going to come up with a game plan for San Francisco. I don't know what it is. Like I don't know how you're going to stop, you know, all the weapons that San Francisco has on offense. But I know this: they're going to go into that game with a solid game plan. I guess my question about the chief defense is, who's the name on there that jumps out of you? Chris Jones is the first one I think of. Right. Who beyond that really jumps out of you that makes you say, you've got to neutralize him? If you're San Francisco, you want to shut down Chris Jones. I don't think you're going to, but that's the guy you want to be double teaming. I look at the Niner defense, and I'm looking at, as we mentioned before, Nick Bosa, Chase Young, Hargrave, Fred Warner. I'm looking at these guys and I'm thinking, boy, that's an awfully good defense. So I'm struggling to give a decisive edge to Kansas City when it comes to the defense. Yeah, I would say Mike Edwards. That's a good call. Their safety. Yeah, I mean, that's he's, a good he's call. Kind of the, he's kind of the name that I don't know how – I don't know if you would say that he's like all pro level, but he's – He's one of those guys who's always around the ball in the secondary. And Very good. players, yeah, good players point. like that, I think, are invaluable in big games like this. Um, if you were to make a case for San Francisco winning this game, what does the game look like for them? I don't think they win a shootout. I think you have to rely on their defense. Now, look, they've shown they can come back from a big deficit, consider the NFC Championship. But the Super Bowl, I struggle to think that down 28-3, sorry, Falcons fans, that they they <laughs> could pull soon, that Rob. kind of thing off. Yeah, I know, too soon. <laughs> I know. Believe me, I was with you that night, guys. Just run the blasted ball. But anyway, uh, I don't think they win a shootout. I think they got to keep it a little bit closer. I don't know if this is a case that first to 30 wins, but I think if the Niners can put up 30, I like their chances. And if Kansas City is going to win this game, what does that game look like? It's a game in which Patrick Mahomes is doing what he does. He connects with uh, he connects with Kelsey. Uh, Taylor's loving it up in the suite. You know, life is good for them. Um, even sprinkling in the ball to, you know, some of the check downs, getting it to, you know, a, a Rasheed Rice or a Pacheco out of the backfield or, or Justin Watson, like I said, who can have some big catches. Valdez Scantling, maybe he could be kind of a, a, a little bit of a, you know, kind of a, a background guy for MVP, not an expected MVP, but that kind of guy. And I think the defense, the defense really matters for the Chiefs. If Spags can come up with one of these great game plans and Chris Jones can keep doing what he's been doing, then it's it's going to be a, a, another Chiefs Sunday. And I admit, I won't lose any sleep if the Chiefs win again. But yeah, they're, it's a little tiring to watch them win. Last question. Who you got? You know, I, I think overall... There's something to be said for the experience. Uh, that's not to say the Niners don't have experience. They were in this game a few years ago, but it feels like it was a different group. You know, you're running with a different quarterback now. You're running with a very, very inexperienced, 
experienced quarterback. And will that finally catch up with, with him? I don't know. Purdy at times has played like he's unfazed. He just spreads the ball around, hands it to McCaffrey. And again, not to be offensive, he manages the game without turning it over. But if he gets in turnover trouble, then you got big problems on your hands. I think at the end of the day, the Chiefs find a way. They just always do. Except for the COVID Super Bowl against Tom Brady, they get the job done every time. And for some reason, I feel like it's the Chiefs again. All right, our listeners have been waiting more than an hour for me to make my pick. I've been putting it <laughs> off until now. This game reminds me so much of the last two games that we've seen the Chiefs play. Um, and I can see it going either of those two ways. Where you have, if you need to play a shootout game, I can see San Francisco getting into a shootout with Kansas City. Mm. I don't think it's likely that that's the outcome, but it would not surprise me to see that. Um, if you got to play a defensive slugfest, I can see that too. I would not have told you that a year ago, but with this Kansas City defense, I can absolutely see a low-scoring game. Um, the thing that I think you have to keep in mind is the edge at coach and at quarterback. I do think that matters. I think that matters. I mean, it always has mattered, right? Like Vince Lombardi and Bart Starr won the first Super Bowl and that precedent was established and it's been true ever since there's been Super Bowls. The model for San Francisco to win this game is the game you alluded to with Tampa. And you can bet they're watching film of that game for what Tampa did and how they were able to give Mahomes one of his worst statistical days of his career. That is yep. what San Francisco needs to do if they're going to win this game. That's the kind of game they have to play. Um, and you know what? You can bet Kansas City's watching footage of that game too. Because I think they know deep down that San Francisco is going to try to replicate that. And so they got to try to figure out how do we protect against that kind of thing happening. Um, how does this game end? I think that San Francisco is going to put up a hell of a fight. It's going to be... I, I, I would be surprised if this is a more than a touchdown margin. Um, but there's something to be said for championship pedigree. And the Chiefs have it. We've seen it. You know, we got into this postseason, and Kansas City was 11-6, and six, and they're like, eh, they'll, they'll win their home game, and then they're cooked against whoever they play after that. And you know what? They Certain teams have that winning DNA that they just – it doesn't matter who's opposite you in your matchup. Like, you're just going to find a way to make the play. And that's why I say Kansas City 27 to 23. Yeah, I can see that kind of score. I keep thinking 30 is a bit of a magic number. Um, you know, something in, in the 30 to 24, 30 to 26 type of range. Um, but it'd be fun. Gosh, it'd be fun for it to be a field goal game and see it come down to Jake Moody. 
just to, to see, you know, I'm all about drama. I admit that as a broadcaster. Give me the drama every time. I just called a basketball game that ended on a buzzer beater, so I, I, I love it. You know, I thrive <laughs> off that stuff. Um, yeah. So, I, I you know, let me be sitting, whether it's on my couch or on my cousin's couch, wherever I am on Super Bowl Sunday, let me be sitting there with a close game and, and – you know, a little bit of a, a little bit of a rumbling in the stomach. I like it. Yeah, you know, let me. You know, I'm, I'm kind of annoyed that Paramount Plus isn't doing this, but CBS is doing the Super Bowl this year, as you know. And yep. I'm kind of annoyed that Paramount Plus hasn't already announced that they're going to be exclusively streaming like Taylor Swift Cam the entire game. I would love <laughs> to see that, and I would love for this game to be tied in the last minute with, you know. The Swifties all like going crazy, and the Nickelodeon simulcast is doing its thing. And you know, on CBS in the final minute, you got Tony Romo going, I don't know, Jim. You know, like <laughs> I, 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 I would, I would love that as a as a viewer of the game. I think that would be tremendous. And, tr- and remember, we're not guaranteed Taylor will be at the Super Bowl because she's got a show in Tokyo the night before. So that'll make for some fun. Uh, you know, I, I I have a sneaky suspicion she's gonna find a way to get there. I agree. I agree. Yeah. So, by the way, quick pick. Do you have who's your Super Bowl MVP candidate? Everybody's throwing you know, names out there. Yeah, uh, you know what? I'm gonna go with the standard. Not surprising. Uh, Patrick Mahomes. Let me tell you something about Patrick Mahomes, and I have not done this on my own show yet, but I've been meaning to. Patrick Mahomes is better than Tom Brady. I'm saying it here, I'm saying it now, and I'll take Mahomes to win an MVP. Well, I I would bet that we could fill an hour's conversation just with that debate, because um, that, that, <laughs> that, that is an interesting one already. Um, all right, I'm going to give you a name that's a little bit off- off the grid in terms of Super Bowl MVP. Um, Got to watch out for Kelsey. I thought about that too, and it just seems it just seems like an easy play with the Taylor factor, so I'm trying to stay away from it, did, but I like you going that did, way. Did you see his stat line in the championship game? Like, if he does something like that and they win a close game, I could see it. I could see it too. I could see it too. I mean, he he has had he and Taylor have had a remarkable impact on the NFL season, whether good or bad, like it or not. They've had a remarkable impact. It would not surprise me because it's human. It's human error. It's human beings that are making the MVP vote. When it comes down to it, you know there are vote. There is a vote online, but it's still people sitting in the press box who fill out a card and say, "This is my MVP." It's going to be really interesting, and it should be a fun matchup, even though it's a rematch from a few years ago. Everything everything old with the Super Bowl is new every year, and so it's going to be a lot of fun regardless with these two teams. Um, Rob, thanks so much for being mystery guest number three. I loved it. This was fun. Always great to talk with you. Hey, it's, it's okay to talk with you sometimes. Okay, I appreciate it. But, you know, stay in touch, will you? Okay, sounds good. So that's going to do it for us. Uh, You have been listening to this episode of the Gribble Nation Roadcast. I hope you enjoyed the Super Bowl 58 preview show. Uh, You can follow us on Spotify, on Google, on 
YouTube, because Google Podcasts is moving to YouTube in the near future, so keep an eye out for that change. Um, so you can find us pretty much anywhere you have an internet connection, so there's no excuse for you to not be following us, so shame on you uh, if you're not following us already. Um, certainly hope you have enjoyed this episode. May the best team win on February 11th in Las Vegas. And until we speak again, uh, I'd like to say thank you all very much for listening, and I'll catch you next time. Let's get one more phone call. Uh, let's go to Marvin in Rochester. Marvin, you're on the Overtime Show. Hey, Nate. How you doing? Good. Real good. I want to talk about the defense and how I believe Von Miller, Evans, I know he's injured, but he didn't really show up this year. And I think the big problem with tonight is we didn't feed the pit. Feed, feed, feed the pit. Feed the pit. I got to go. Uh, we're going to take a timeout, and then we're going to hear from Sean McDermott on the other side. So we'll get that in, and we're going to do that, I think. Uh... Thank you for tuning in to uh, an episode of the Gribble Nation Roadcast. Uh, we hope uh, you get to listen to us again soon. Have a good one.